What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre, an inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of St. Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, that's funny. I'll tell you why. I'm gonna... <laughs> that's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Look, I'm the biggest Bill, how you doing? I'm doing good. It's Friday night, and um, the World Series is on. I have the privilege to watch it, although there's not many people probably watch this game since it's Houston against the Atlanta Braves. And I'm sure around here, we want San Francisco and the LA Dodgers to go at it. You know, but so yeah, it's it's, it's a decent game. So I'm just enjoying it, having a, a cup of coffee and um, kind of winding down from a long day on death row. It's weird to hear you say it like that. I was picturing, you know, a cozy, you know, little cabin that you were sequestered in, and it's a little too cozy. Yeah, I, well, it would probably be a lot louder here if it was, like I said, the Dodgers or the Giants playing. But, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a program that I've known for such a long time that there's not a whole lot that really gets me going. So, you know, today was kind of like a normal day. I went outside. I... um I worked out for a couple hours. I ran, hit the bag, did all my calisthenics, pull-ups, dips, and the crazy stuff I do every day to stay in shape. And, um, you know, that's about, I stayed outside till like 12, 31 o'clock, and then came back in. And, um, you know, it's like a normal day. I, I, I paint, I write, and today I was preparing for this episode of Death Row Diaries. Yeah, and we should say welcome. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. Yeah, and we're going to today discuss the case of a guy that you knew in prison before uh, he was executed, and that's Stanley Tookie Williams. And this case is very interesting. It's one of the most notable. We're going to get into it. But first, we have a few listener questions. Uh, The first one is from Aaron in Portland, Oregon. Wants to know. We're going to see with with Williams that he had a pretty, pretty rough uh, upbringing and we've seen that with everyone we've discussed. And so Aaron's question is, do you know anyone on death row that had a very healthy upbringing that had a good family life and no serious issues to report? Uh, I'm sure that person exists. I don't personally know them because you know, you could have a nice relationship or it may look like a good relationship to your family, but no one knows what's really going on inside um, that atmosphere. Most of the cases of the people that are in prison or specifically on death row um, have had tough child- childhood. Uh, they were abused physically, sometimes emotionally, obviously sometimes sexually. Um, so, yeah, most of the families, the guys here come from families that are 
poor. They obviously have certain issues going on. Now, I will say this. I mean, and I, now that you mentioned this, I started thinking, cataloging all these serial killers I know and I've studied. And one comes to mind that really is the exception to all the rules. So we could say that he was just bad to begin with, maybe. But Randy Kraft, the scorecard killer, who was, has something in the neighborhood of 47 kills, uh, he's an American serial killer, but he, was, he came from a very normal Orange County family, upper middle class, you know, good father, good mother. There was no divorce. There was no abuse that we know of. Now, again, we don't know what took place behind closed doors, but from all intended purposes, you know, he was on the Republican committee at one point. He had letters from John F. Kennedy. He had letters from Robert Kennedy. He switched parties, became a Democrat. So that's a good uh, question that um, this gentleman had. And that's the only guy that I can really pinpoint that it looked like he had a very good upbringing, and yet he turns into a serial killer. So I guess that's the answer. Most 90% or 95% of the people that I know had, uh, you know, grew up in neighborhoods where there were gang activity, abuse, and a lot of, um, obviously, being poor does not help. Okay, Monica from Lake Charles, Louisiana asks, what is more dangerous, L.A. County Jail or San Quentin State Prison? That's a very good question, and it's not easily answered. Los Angeles County Jail is a dangerous place, but there are no guns. There's no guards shooting at you. There's nothing to that effect. San Quentin Prison in the 80s and 90s, the entire prison was the most notorious prison in the world because of all the murders, stabbings. It was the worst prison in the nation. It was worse than Angola. It was worse than Leavenworth. But right, but death row has stayed in that state of mind. San Quentin Prison now is a rehabilitated place for level twos. They have school, colleges. It's it's almost like a, a college campus out there. That is not death row. When you walk to the gates of East Block and it says condemn row, you're walking back in 1976. The, the amount of violence that happens on death row, we have set more than 750 murderers, murderers and killers hanging out together. There's bound to be violence. So in my opinion, death row is much more, uh, can you say, dangerous. L.A. County's got more people, but death row's more concentrated, and there's always the possibility that a gunner will shoot you in the back of the head and kill you. Yeah, and that's may as well just lead into into Tookie Williams with that because he's he's fitting the the description of of uh, you know the category that makes up almost everyone, which is he he did have a a rough start to his life. Uh, he was born in New Orleans back in 1953 and then they moved to south central south central los angeles when he was very young about six years old and no father and it's just a mess right away he gets into he gets into some bad stuff right yeah his his father abandons the family when he's only one 
years of age. And his mother, who wanted to better their lives, obviously she's a very hardworking woman, in 1959 moves the family to South Central Los Angeles, which I don't know if that's actually a good move because, I mean, during that time, in the late 50s, 60s, Los Angeles was a very, there's a lot of racial tension there. Um, it was prior to the Watch Riots. And so, but yeah, she worked several jobs. And when single parents work several jobs to keep food on the table and try and do the best job they can as parents, especially single mothers, well, there's no childcare and the kids tend to run around. And I think that's uh, exactly what happened to um, Stan. At the age of 10, he begins to hang around a dog fighting ring. I can see the appeal to that. You're watching dogs fight, a lot of guys there, a lot of macho adrenaline running around. And that's where his education begins on how to survive on the streets. Um, and obviously he's a very physical kid. And the guys who fought the dogs uh, began to hone his skills as a fighter. Uh, after the fight, dog fights were done, the men would pit him against other kids and bet on the fights. And if he won, they would give him a portion of these proceeds. You can imagine, I mean, that's pretty young. Uh, you know, you're a 10 year old child, and I know a little bit about this. I started in the martial arts at the age of four. By the age of six, I was competing in martial art tournaments. But those are a little bit different. You know, martial art tournaments, you know, there's judges, there's, uh, you're wearing protective gear, cups, teeth protector, uh, mouth gear, uh, gloves. This is on the streets. You're fighting on concrete. And you can get hurt really quickly, and if you do, there's no medical care. And again, there's no training here. This is just flat-out fighting. Yeah, so he kind of gets thrown into this lifestyle, for lack of a better word. You know, he's he's getting kind of a sense of self-worth from beating other kids up, and he's, you know, that that's how he's shown affection by these drunks you know that are gambling on 10 year old kids like a bunch of weirdos gambling on street fights between children um but he you know he's popular with these guys because he's really tough you know he soon grows up to be a very imposing man i mean he, he looks bigger than half the guys in the world wrestling federation by the time he's a you know 18 19 year old adult yeah, exactly right. And um, the thing about fighting in something like that and the praise he's getting, kids like that. I mean, they feel important. There's adults, and the adults are giving them respect. They're giving them attention, which at that age, uh, a young man, young boy with no father, he's looking for father figures, and these men provided that. But unfortunately, that is really a bad start because he – he realizes being tough, understanding that you gain respect from fear, that leads down a bad road. And by age 12, he understands the danger that he could be in from predatorial gangs that see what he's able to do. And he begins to carry a switchblade. And that immediately is not a good idea. He's expelled from school for fighting and for carrying a switchblade. And this happens um, 
that kind. It's not just one expulsion. It happens a number of times. He gets in another fight. He's expelled again. The next time he's found in possession with switchblade, he's expelled again. That can't be a good start for any kid. And um, at first, he really did dislike gangs. He thought they were bullies. He thought they were predatorial. He didn't like them. But as that road begins to open up to you, you get used to street life. At age 15, he's invited into a small West Side clique. It's not a gang, but they're kind of like a gang. And it isn't long before he becomes the unofficial leader after fighting his way to the top. I mean, that's how it happens in these street gangs. The tougher you are, the more respect you get. Yeah, so there's a lot of circumstances that lead to this. He is essentially blackballed from every school in the area. So he's just, like, kicked out of school. Um, So he has no structure in his life whatsoever. He has no family life for the most part. And so there's all these young guys that, you know, are, are a club basically. And that's what he kind of wanted it to be is, is, um, is something positive. Um, you know, this was the black Panthers, you know, most of the street gangs, the kind of old school street gangs that we think of, um, not Crips and bloods, but just sort of groups of guys that would go around drinking wine and whatever they would do. Uh, you know, they had joined the Black Panthers, the, the kind of older guys. So there was kind of a an opportunity for for these new gangs of these younger guys to, you know, more or less run the neighborhood, right? Well, yes. I mean, there there is that that feeling that happens when you when you're in a club or a, a clique of guys. There's a bit of a leadership. There's a bit of home. There's a unofficial family life. Uh, and given the fact he's kicked at so many schools, he's also a very intelligent guy. You know, the streets educate you. And if you have an, a high IQ to begin with, I mean, IQ has nothing to do with how many books you read or how many schools you go to or how you graduate. IQ is about the, your, your capability or your capacity to absorb more information and problem solving. He had a high capacity, so he probably, and I don't have any official records, but he, I knew him personally, and I know that he had a very high IQ. He's a very intelligent guy, but what happens at this early age is that you, your testosterone levels are up. You're, you know, you're, you're struggling with your own um, you know, ability to, to define yourself, and at age 16, he's arrested for the first time for Grand Theft Auto, GTA. And he's sent to Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall in Downey, California, where he's introduced to weightlifting and bodybuilding, which he enjoys and thrives in. But a piece that I want to explain to the listeners is that Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall is a vicious place. This isn't a place where a bunch of kids are hanging out, going to school, watching movies. Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall is for the worst kids in the Los Angeles area. There are gangs there. There are rapes. There are thefts, brutal beatings. This is not a nice place. These are the future convicts that go to prison are the ones they're breeding in these places. The counselors often 
pit the kids against each other so he fights. You know, I've never been to juvenile hall. I never went to YA, but I am on death row with about a bunch of killers, and I've talked to a number of them about how it was in those, those gladiator schools, because that's what they call them, gladiator schools. They teach you to become who these guys have become later in life. So it's not a nice place. So that's where they put Tookie Williams, um, and he thrived at it. I mean, he enjoyed the weightlifting, he, everything, and he thrived at it. So I didn't realize, and maybe our listeners don't, that at this time where he's he's 16 years old, there are no crips and there are no bloods, but he announces um, at the juvenile hall upon his release, you know, they say, what, what are you going to do with your life? And he says, be the leader of the biggest gang in the world. Um, so pretty brazen. It made me wonder, I wonder what he meant by gang, because... Now, when we hear gang, I think of the Bloods and the Crips, but that didn't exist. Yeah, that's interesting, and I'm not sure how much credibility you can put to something like that. You, you would have to be pretty brazen, you know, ignorant maybe, to tell a board where they're going to be releasing you, and they can keep you in juvenile hall or wherever they're going to keep you. If you tell him something like that, can't see a parole board saying, well, yeah, let's let this guy out then. So, you know, this is part of that whole legendary thing. There's a lot of legend behind this guy. And I don't know if that's actually true. But as you mentioned, you know, when he is released, this is um, right around 1970, a mutual friend of him introduces him to Raymond Washington whom in 1969 had, in fact, formed a small group called the East Side Crips after he left the Avenues gang to form his own gang. And he and Tookie Williams got along well. They had mutual interest. They were both great fighters and almost legendary in those neighborhoods. And they had kind of a similar style as well. So... Then in 1971, they unite Tookie's West Side Click, which was a club, and Raymond Washington's East Side Crips, they joined to form what many describe to be a super gang. At first, and this is from his own words, his intention was not to form a gang. That was not, a, it was to form a group to protect African Americans from police brutality and racism but as with many intentions you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions because soon that vision is forgotten when membership to this super gang begins to explode Tookie has a very I guess respected uh, reputation and so does Raymond Washington and they go into other neighborhoods and challenge other group leaders in fights and obviously they're winning so they begin to recruit at an extremely high rate and the gang which now are known as the Crips have spread into Inglewood, Watts and other parts of Los Angeles Um, I mean I guess everything he disliked it kind of became what he and 
Washington put together. But, I mean, you really can't put everything on this guy because once you form something, it really has a mind of its own. That's exactly what happens. Because by 1972, many other of these crypt leaders are arrested or killed, including Raymond Washington, who was incarcerated for second-degree robbery and was sent to Tracy Prison for five years. And then soon after his release, he's murdered in his front of his home. Somebody called him over to a car, and when he walked over, they shot and killed him right there in front of everybody. It, it kind of gets to where, it, so he's already disadvantaged at this point in, in terms of like what he can do with his life. You know, he has no like high school degree, um, but it kind of gets out that he's a gangster and he gets kind of barred from competing in these bodybuilding competitions. And that was actually kind of his passion prior to sliding more into this gang stuff. So it's kind of like another door closing for him. Yeah, um, it, it, it does happen. It, this is a little bit later down the line from for more um, 1972 because by this time, Tookie Williams is regarded by many to be the undisputed leader. And he's respected for his feet. And as I said, they become legendary and the stories begin to circle around him, some highly accurate, others not so accurate. But... By the mid-1970s, he, he begins to live a double life. And as I mentioned before, he's very intelligent. And he, you know, he has like a, a conflict going on between what he has formed and what he wants in life. It's almost like he's separating himself from it. He's trying to. Like when we watch The Godfather, he always says, I try to get myself away, but they pull me back in. That kind of happens with him because... You know, he is, well, for lack of a better term, the leader of an organized criminal enterprise. And at the same time, he has a job as a youth counselor in an anti-gang setting in Compton. At the same time, he's also attending colleges studying sociology. So as you can see, he has these conflicting um, passions. Obviously, he's good at what he does, as a the leader of this gang, but he's also doing all his anti-gang youth counseling and attending college. Why would he do this? The only way I can just, the only way I can wrap my head around it is that he liked doing it all. He was good at what he did. He's an intelligent guy, and he saw the advantages of being educated. Yeah, it's really hard to kind of picture how he was engaging in this kind of pushing and pulling thing. I mean, he's playing both sides. Um, at first I thought, well, maybe he's trying to recruit kids into the gang from his sociology work or, you know, maybe he knows, well, this particular kid is going to be, for lack of a better word, a loser. I'll get him into the gang, you know, I, but I don't want to corrupt the smart kid, so I'm going to steer him towards school or something. You know, maybe he's... I don't know, because he has this sort of folk hero, this budding folk hero image to where I feel like he did have a lot of influence. You know, he's a giant guy. He's got a big afro. This is the 70s, you know. Um, 
and they're walking around in suspenders and starched jeans and um yeah I, I was just wondering if maybe he he just thought he could kind of pick people out and maybe some of them are beyond helping or or what i don't know that's possible but i've i've had a conversation with him numerous times as i said he was in the same yard with me for more than a decade and he and i spent a lot of time talking and the one thing that i didn't notice about him is that he felt there was a he had a responsibility and this is obviously years after we were on death row but becoming a counselor um for youth and most of these youth were african-american probably latino um and he attended college to understand sociology so he can relate to these kids i think he he felt he had a responsibility to the community to try and help these kids and at the same time he understood what he represented and he had to be loyal to that this side of I mean, that side of himself you can be two different people it's 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 not very difficult. You could be, we see it all the time. We see guys that are lawyers and doctors and yet they're, they're the head of a criminal organization that backs up the mob or whatever. It does happen. People have their own passions and their own beliefs on what they do things, but he struggled with it. I think he really felt he had a responsibility. As I mentioned earlier, he started this organization with the intention to protect African-Americans from police brutality and as we know today it happens i mean there's people every person on the street has a camera with them and we see these videos happening imagine how it was in the 1960s and 70s when nobody had cameras and most minorities kept their mouth shut because if you said yeah that officer did this or i saw that officer do that the retaliation was immediate and intense so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, he was in a very bad spot in that sense. Um, but, you know, that's a lifestyle that he chose. And by 1976, there's a, an attempt on his life. You know, he's sitting on his porch of his home, a car pulls up, and they really uh, are trying to kill him. They, he, they managed to shoot him several times. He dives to avoid being fatally wounded, but his legs are severely shot. And the wounds are so bad, the doctors tell him he's never going to walk again. That's pretty uh, intense when somebody tells you that. Doctors say, hey, you know what? You're done. Your career as a bodybuilder, your career as an athlete are done. Um, well, obviously, he didn't pay attention to those doctors, and he went through intense rehabilitation, intense workouts, and before the year is out, he regains the ability to walk, which is a milestone that he was able to come back from nearly being killed. Yeah, and this is where, for obvious reasons, things kind of take a sharp turn. Or, or maybe not for obvious reasons. Maybe this is the point where he may have said, I'm getting out of this stuff. You know, but for whatever reason, you got to figure, and it's this applies to all young, you know, teenage men, 18, 19, 20 year old guys, you got, uh, you're studying sociology at the college and then you got this gang thing where it may be more exciting, but there's also just a lot of other perks. You're probably 
making some money, you might have some female attention, but what you definitely have is status, you know, and that's appealing to these young guys. Oh yeah, it's very difficult to walk away from that status. Believe me when I tell you that all the accolades from intense studying, college, your mom saying you did a great job, once you get a taste for accolades from the streets, when you walk into a club, everybody knows who you are and everybody understands that you're the apex predator. You're the guy that is extremely intoxicating. And I think that kind of seduced him. But by this time he has a number of setbacks, including the death of his maternal grandmother, who he was close to. And subsequently right after that, he loses his job as a counselor after being implemented in a robbery that two of the youth committed from a group home he supervised. So, uh, yeah, it just, it, it, there's some really bad things going on there. Um, he's probably drowning in a sea of his own reputation. Uh, and the following year, he is banned for life from competing as a bodybuilder. Um, and the organization that he was in discovered that he was a gang leader or a reputed gang leader. And they said, we can't have you on the show or on this uh, platform. But later uh, that year, he appears on a nationally televised show called The Gong Show. And he goes through a routine very similar to what Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno do in these pose downs uh, of showing off his hard work as a bodybuilder. And, well, he goes on that show and he, I guess he's trying to counter that they dismissed him from competition and he does the show. Yeah, so he went on the gong show, for those that don't remember, that was before my time, but it was a goofy variety show where if you had like a certain skill, uh, you would go on there and perform it, and if they hit a giant novelty-sized gong, you were kind of, uh, you know, embarrassed or you had to leave the stage, basically. But I think he did pretty well because he was a... He was... I don't know why he didn't get into pro wrestling, honestly, but... They didn't really uh, like black people doing that back then either. So there was a few. There were a few, oh, yeah. Just to return, yeah. Remember Rocky? Obviously, um, The Rock's father and Superfly Suka was his grandfather, and his father was Rocky B. Uh, Johnson. So there were a few, and, and actually, if you look at the similarity between Rocky Johnson and Stan Tookie Williams and how they looked in their body types, they look a lot alike. Yeah, you know, I guess maybe he wanted to stay at his base in L.A., I, or who knows why, but uh, he did get the gong show. Uh, so I'm a little confused, maybe you can clear up on the timeline here, because I I thought I had read that it took him almost a year to be able to walk again, and that's got to be a blow to anyone, but geez, especially someone that, you know, has so much of their their identity and everything based on their body. So I'm wondering at what point he kind of starts getting high. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people always asking those questions like, you know, it's no secret that I competed in the martial arts to the age of, you know, until my arrest, I was almost 20 years of age. And I was, in fact, taking anabolic steroids, dianabol to be specific. Um, and you know what? I smoked pot. 
I, I, I did a number of pills. I was never hooked on anything, but I you know, tried LSD. I tried different drugs when I was young. It's something you do. And in the mid-1970s, and of course, he's a bodybuilder, and I was an athlete. I mean, I, I won the Hot Keto Middleweight Champion at the age of 16, which had never been done before. You know, fighting against a 28-year-old man who was the two-time middleweight champion. And I was, you know, using drugs. It, it's not that much of a stretch for people who work out, uh, do intense type of athletic, athletic uh, competitions to, when they're relaxing, to get loaded, get stoned. Actually, it's more common than you would think. And in the 70s, a lot of people in Los Angeles were in the crisis of this epidemic of, of using PCP. There's a d- number of different street names. It's called Angel Dust, um, a, a, a joint, a marijuana joint dipped in PCP is called a Lovely. If you just dip a cool cigarette because the menthol, it's called a cool. Uh, a lot of the people call it water because it's actually something you dip in. It was a kind of a pandemic of this drug that was in Los Angeles, and a lot of people used it. And, well, unfortunately, uh, Stan Chucky Williams tried it out or was using it, and during one of the times that he did smoke it, he had a bad reaction. You know, we've, we've heard about this stuff. This isn't uncommon that people after smoking this chemical have bad reactions. They get paranoid. They, they have the, the, you know, hallucinations of, uh, of that they're Superman or there's a monsters coming after them. They get paranoid. There's all kinds of bad things that can happen. And something along those lines happens to Dookie Williams. He is arrested and he's placed in a medical facility for basically an overdose of PCP. It's pretty similar to, you know, if we have younger people, it's pretty similar to like K2 or Spice. It's just like a a speed that doesn't seem fun, but, uh, you know, people people do it. And I think it's pretty pretty hard to regulate, so you can easily take too much. I've never done it. Um, do you think he could have been taking steroids too uh, around the time he gets a little bit violent? You know, it's, it's possible. He was very developed physically, but you don't have to take steroids to get physically developed. Um, I, you know, it, 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 he could have, but I've never heard of him taking any kind of anabolic steroids. He was pretty gifted. His, his genetic makeup made him um, very muscular, and he lifted very hard at the time that I met him for nearly a decade in the same yard, he worked out intensely. Um, you know, he was slinging around a 450, 500 pound bench press. Uh, sometimes he'd go higher. Uh, as you said, he's, he's, it's not hard to imagine how strong this guy was in prison. There's a lot of guys in the 400 and 500 club. It's not rare, but he was very strong. Was he, uh, so much stronger than everybody else here that it, it, people took notice? Absolutely not. Uh, in the the makeup of these yards on death row, especially yard one, where I was at at one time, which was a fully affiliated yard uh, for different gangs, 
he was just one of many. There's a many guys here that was benching well over 450 pounds, 500 pounds, and squatting much more than that. So wow. yeah, it's 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 unfortunate that all these things happen because he's so gifted. As you mentioned, you now if you would have been his agent, you could have got him into pro wrestling. The guy's life would have probably been totally different. 500 pounds, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's not much. Believe me when I tell you, that's not much. There was, there was guys in the yard at that time that were slinging that stuff around like it was nothing. I mean, I know that the mentality of people in prison gets much more aggressive than anything you would see on the streets, but Arnold Schwarzenegger and Robbie Robinson and Franco Colombo came in here to watch guys on death row workouts. And they walked out of here with their mouth on their chest thinking, there's no way these guys are hitting this kind of way. And th th these aren't what we call, uh, you know, well, I'm going to say how, how people say here, pussy weights with balanced and special Olympic iron that flexes. And when it hits your chest, it bounces halfway up. The iron that we were using here, they call it pig iron. There's no bounce. There's nothing. When 400 pounds comes down on you, it's 400 pounds on your chest. And guys were slinging that stuff around. Um, you know, at that time, I was in my, my 20s, and I was benching well over 440 pounds. Wow, man. I'm, I'm only doing like 200 of the pussy weight, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's see, but that's the counter blessings, that you're not having to work out at that extreme because there's always somebody within a few feet of you that's holding a knife that could kill you. So I would trade your workouts for the ones I have to do in here just to stay on top of the game. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have that kind of time to dedicate to it. So he is uh, – we're going to talk about what led to him being on death row on the next episode, but he became one of the most famous prisoners in America and – and he was, you know, a cause celeb of the of the death penalty and that whole controversy. But he also was kind of beloved by a lot of people for books that he wrote and for um, just being kind of a voice of positivity and reform and and all these things. Um, so we'll get into that later. But did you see that in him when he uh, when he arrived there? Well, I saw the, the, the transformation, you know, he was in the hole for many, many years and then he came out of the hole and he wrote a number of children's books against gang life. Uh, he then wrote a memoir, uh, life in prison to kind of show the horrors of prison and, um, what not to get into. And then he wrote another book called, um, Blue Rage, Black Redemption. And then he begins to get this following because he begins to call, you know, schools, talk about anti-gang activity. He would call into large communities in Los Angeles, talk down the gang activity and trying to stop the violence. So I saw firsthand how he began to, as I said, he was a very intelligent guy. And he understood the responsibility that was on his shoulders. He tried to do the best that he can with which what was given to him. It's very difficult to see what's going on when you're in the middle of it, on the street, you know, dodging bullets and going through all this stuff. But when he got to prison, he got some clarity. 
and he did the best he could. There was movies made about him. We have the Pope, you know, asking for his uh, for his life to be spared. A lot of actors. He he really did a lot, which we will talk about in the next episode. But I saw it firsthand, and it was uh, impressive. It was. Um, it's almost sometimes I've said this to you before, Matt. It's a horrible thing to realize your potential once you're in prison. If you could just get to that mindset when you're out there, you can do great things. Unfortunately for Stan, that realization came once he was in prison. I mean, not to mention that he didn't do great things while he was out. You know, he tried to become a counselor. He really had a bit of that. But it wasn't until he ended up in the worst place in the world that he fully grasped the potential that he had and he embraced it. Yeah, and I guess we can debate if it was too late at that point, but he did have a lot of influence, as you just said, from behind bars. So we will get into that and we will get into what led him to be sentenced to death next time. So I've been Matt Ralston. And this is William Maynard for Death Row Diaries. By the way, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and Patreon. Also, Death Row Diaries, where you can get exclusive content and merchandise. Anyway. <laughs>